Hello and welcome to Better Words. My name is Caitlin and I'm just a bookish babe. And I'm back. I'm <laughs> Michelle and I'm from the Unfinished Bookshelf and we've finally been reunited. We're reunited oh. and it feels... What's... Hang on. I think I just started singing the wrong song. I was like, <laughs> I was like, reunited at last, something. And then I was like, reunited and it feels so good. And I'm like, I don't think either of those are actual Actually, things. Yeah. I think I just made them up. Oh, Anywho. it's so good to see you again. Yeah. Even though we're recording under a blanket where we can't see I know, I can't actually see you right now. I think I can see the outline of your arm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my love, how have you been? Oh, yeah, good, good. You know, cool, 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 cool. Cool, Yeah, I actually just said to you before we started to hit record that I have not really been saying anything in these introductions because I like don't know how to do them by myself and I know I <laughs> guess hard, you you yeah. weren't doing them by yourself because you were with Jack but I, I didn't really have anything awkward silences though we're like looking at each other, I just edited like, them out yeah. it's fine yeah no but like it was it's weird yeah, I know it's I, like it's yeah. weird sometimes when we do it but mm. like it was just strange by yeah. myself I didn't know what to do yeah so weird actually no I did have that one time we did the love YA day mashup and I was just like doing little intro bits and I was like this is so bizarre yeah I know not having someone to bounce off is weird Mm. anyway um obviously this is not a visual format so people can't see your awesome little braids that you've got (laughs) but I love your hair it's so cute I wish I could do two braids I can't I can only do one you know it's the same you just use less hair on one side of your head yeah but I I've only just taught myself how to do one braid so I haven't attempted to yet oh well maybe you should should. one day because like again I say it's the same you just use (laughs) half your hair it sounds good in theory but I'm sure I will struggle (laughs) no yeah I um yeah obviously because I cut my hair at the end of last year I've been waiting for it to sort of get a bit I think it's a bit longer now and this works a bit better and Two braids uses, like, the hair's shorter, so I think it was a bit easier. But I haven't had braids in for ages, and I really liked them. So Yeah, they yeah. look really, really cute. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I actually have the fun. Someone at work said to me today, like, oh, wow, you can braid your hair really well or whatever. And I was like, I actually taught myself to braid my hair after reading The Hunger Games for the first time. So I went, what? yeah, so I went camping with my family and it was when the movie had come out. So mm-hmm. in like 2011 or whatever. Um, and so I had the book and I was like going to read the book and then go see the movie when I got back, like with my friends or something. And all through, if you've read it, like mm. pe- other people, you know, like all through the book, she's like, I braided my hair and it fell to one side. And like, she's always, you know, she rebraids her <laughs> hair like a lot and she braids her sister's hair and you know, it's like a thing. It's like the staple and it did become, you know, a thing like with all of her costumes and things mm. like that. She still had her hair braided. Um, and I was like, I don't know how to braid my hair. And I would just tried it because like I knew how to plait my hair and everything, but I wasn't really very good at braiding it myself. And I just tried a lot and it was so annoying because it really hurt my arms. Yeah, yeah. Because I, especially then, <laughs> I had mm. much longer hair. I have very thick hair. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort. Um, but, yeah, so I've, I've been pretty good at braiding since then. Actually, another fun fact about braiding, um, a mutual friend of ours, I have been her hairstylist in the council productions for the past, like, three years, braiding her hair. Either once I think it was 
for like her to wear and it's sort of pinned up the ends mm. and other times it's been like under wigs and things like that but I've braided her hair the past three years I'm a Aww. personal hairstylist because I've been on the crew and she's been on the cast Aww. yeah <laughs> see no one else prompts me for funny stories like that when I'm by myself yeah <laughs> exactly why we need each other yeah oh oh you know we were coming in and I was like I've got something to tell you on the podcast and I don't know it was about a podcast oh right yeah okay so um okay this doesn't sound like much of an achievement for anyone that lives in a capital city and has to commute and you know walks to work or uses public transport which is amazing and I salute you I do it's just non-existent it's non-existent in Rockhampton everyone drives everywhere I walked to work today for the first time ever and I think it's just so bizarre to me because growing up I always lived on the other side of town to my school so like yeah. there was no option to like walk to school or anything like mm. that um I did used to get the bus but the bus was a school like it was our, the school, bus, school yeah. bus and it picked you up from your house yeah um so I've never had the option really to walk to work or any uh, sorry to school and um I lived in the same place when I was working, so it's just slightly too far to walk, really. Um, but we obviously live closer now, and it only takes me like five minutes to drive to work. But walking so much on our holiday made me realize how slovenly I am at home and how bad it is that, like, some days I won't even get like, I'll get like a thousand steps because. I do a desk job and I, mm. I don't have to leave the office. Um, and it, it was a bit of a wake up call because like we were suddenly doing like 15, 20 kilometres just yeah. walking incidentally and walking around places because we didn't have a car. So today I decided to walk to work and it was so, so good. I put my tea in my little like Starbucks cup thing and had my little tea with me on the way to work and I walked it only it took me about 40 minutes and it was so good and I felt so refreshed and ready to be at work by the time I got there which I think I probably really needed going back for the first day um but I listened to this really great podcast so it's called letters from a hopeful creative and I think it literally just launched like this week and probably on Monday and it's by Sarah Tasker and Jen Carrington so Sarah Tasker is from me and Ola and Mm -hmm. I've spoken before about how much I love her podcast hashtag authentic Mm -hmm. so this is her new one with Jen Carrington and the idea is that they read out real, it's kind of like an agony aunt sort of thing. They read out real letters the people have sent into them and then they unpick them. And so the first one I listened to was like finding your creative motivation. This person wrote in and was like, I have all these ideas, but I don't know where to start with them. But mm-hmm. I know they're easy. It was, it's just unpicking the, the letter essentially and doing an agony aunt column, but for creative people. Wow. And I loved it. And it basically lasted like the whole length of my walk to work. It was perfect. So yeah, I felt very motivated and inspired by the time I got to work, but uh, they dropped the first three episodes mm-hmm. and I assume it's going to be weekly then. Um, but if you are a creative person in any way, um, I know most of I'm going to assume most of the people who listen to this probably on Instagram using Bookstagram and stuff and um, a lot of people I know have got like writers and bloggers and creators who listen to this. If you're in any way creative, this is an excellent podcast. It's talking about motivation. It's talking about, um, I guess, your ideas and uh, I'm trying to think of the word to describe it, but 
without saying like motivation again, but um, she was talking about the, the letter writer was saying how um, they think they might have depression and that could be impacting how they think about mm-hmm. their creative life. And so they address that as well. And, and it's, it's just really, really good. So anyone who has any creative sort of inclination in whatever way, be it writing or performing or um, painting or anything, I really highly recommend it. So it's called Letters from a Hopeful Creative and it's on iTunes and all the other apps as are we. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but, yeah, it's really good. It's really, really good. And it I sounds think really good, you'd yeah. you'd be really interested in too, like the marketing perspective too, but um, you need to listen to Hashtag Authentic. I, I do, find yeah. find it really good. I know. Got to get around <laughs> all these things. You know. But, yeah, so I am feeling very, like, proud of myself today. I'm going to try and make it a once-a-week thing, at le- like at least once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously only while the weather is cool because oh, by just... summer you can't do that. Yeah, all. no, that's insane. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to try and make it, like, at least once a week, kind of like at least going to the gym once a week. So it's not, like, too much because if you say to yourself, I'm going to do this every day and it's going to be amazing, then it's You're easy never going to do it. And yeah, it's it's yeah. easy to give up because you're like, well, that's too hard. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you just do a little bit, um, get there eventually. Hopefully. Yeah, one yeah. step at a time. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was really, it was a nice walk. It was good. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You know something else, actually, speaking of finally getting around to things, mm-hmm. um, all these podcasts and things and books I have to read and blah, 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 I have finally started watching Upper Middle Bogan. Oh, thank goodness. I love it. So, How good is it? It is so good. I don't know why I have avoided it. I just, it's so good. It's brilliant, isn't it? It is the the best thing ever. Do you find yourself being like, I have upper middle class traits, but also very bogan traits? Like, oh, do totally. You find yourself, yeah. I'm, I'm like, totally. I'm a total mix of both of you know, these You know where I was like, ah, oh, my family bogans came, came in? Where? When, um, when the character, oh, um, so in the first season, um, I think it's the character Sean, his mum, he's listening oh, to the angels. Yeah. <coughs> Am I ever gonna see your face again? No way, get fuck, fuck off. Yeah, so that song is like my family anthem. <laughs> And when they were playing it and he was like, yeah, mum hates the angels because dad always sings that song when they break up or whatever. And then she did it at the, um, you know, the upper class sort of family. Yeah, and she did oh it at God. the, like with the yes, school and orchestra and choir. Yeah. That was the <laughs> best <laughs> thing <laughs> ever. It oh, was so, so good. good. And I was like, this is amazing because honestly, like my whole family loves this song. It's <laughs> It comes up all the time. Oh, so good. The angels it, are the best. Just added the third season, which is like the latest season, um, to Netflix Australia. Mm. It's so good. Yeah. So the first two seasons are there too, oh which is God. what I'm watching. Also, I turned on Netflix this morning. Mm-hmm. There's a new season of Baby Ballroom. I'm obsessed. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I'm so oh my obsessed. Gosh. I love Baby Ballroom so much. Well, wow. so, yeah, it's helping with my withdrawals from the UK too. I'm feeling, you know. Like, oh, yeah, fair yeah, enough. Like, yeah. I need to watch a UK TV show. Also, Jack and I did start watching. We watched the first episode of season two of Marcella, mm-hmm. which um, if you listened earlier in the year, you'll know that uh, Jack and I were obsessed. We binged this quite quickly. Um, so the first season, um, 
a bit slow to start, but then we couldn't stop watching. This is sort of the same. So like, obviously the first episode is very much setting everything up. I think it's about four or five months after the end of the second of, season. Of season one, you mean? Yeah. yeah. End of the first season, sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of setting everything up really, really creepy already. We watched it right before we went to bed. And oh. I was like, I don't want to turn the lights off. It's so creepy. Oh, that's so funny. It was so creepy. So I mean, yeah, no, I can't do that stuff. I'll just leave that one to you. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I wouldn't usually watch that. Like, okay. If I was by myself and had to go to bed by myself, I would only ever watch that during the day. Yeah. Mm. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> Let's get on to our fantastic, fantastic, fantastic interview. I'm so excited that we finally got to speak to Randa. Me too. Um, because we had been trying to organise this. Yes, behind the scenes, ages. this actually took a little while to yeah. organise both our lives and hers. So we're and so thankful. I think and both so of us happy. Um, kind of looked at each other after we recorded this conversation and were like, wow. Like, yeah. We learnt so much and we were fascinated by mm-hmm. it and we are just in awe of her work and her academic work as well as her fiction writing and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we really hope you enjoy this. Our guest this week is an award-winning author and has worked as a lawyer, human rights advocate and community volunteer. She holds a PhD in sociology and is researching Islamophobia, racism and everyday multiculturalism in Australia. If she wasn't already busy enough, our guest is also working on the adaptation of her novel, Does My Head Look Big In This? Welcome to Better Words, Randa Abdel-Fatah. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) <laughs> it's our pleasure. We've been wanting to chat to you for a while because we both really enjoyed When Michael Met Mina. Yes, loved it. I think I read it in like a day. <laughs> Thank you so much. That means a lot. So obviously I, I think that's probably a good place to start. So all of your books deal with contemporary issues, especially around multiculturalism in Australia. Uh, but I think When Michael Met Mina really captured, I guess, that, you know, black and white talk that we hear and it, it to me I like I read it when it first came out and it was before Donald Trump um and before that had really kind of taken hold but I feel I see it even more now working in the media that it's kind of like there's no gray everyone has like a black and white opinion about things and I'd love to talk a little bit about why you wanted to explore that in the novel and I guess especially talking about how you know you can go from two very different views but still find a common ground and kind of change minds and stuff like that yeah sure so when I when I wrote it I never actually intended to write it it sort of came out of my PhD research so I um, was doing research looking at racism and Islamophobia in Australia from the point of view of people who actually profess to hold um quite sort of vehemently like strong views about Muslims and multiculturalism and we're against um, Muslims in Australia, we're against Islam, we're against multiculturalism. But also on the other end of the spectrum, people who are ambivalent about multiculturalism or um, I'm not racist but kind of sort of. um, (laughs) And um, while I was doing my field work, I attended an anti-asylum seeker rally and was interviewing people there, which was quite confronting um, given my own politics on refugees and asylum seekers. And the inspiration for the novel hit me when I was there because I started to um, think about what it would would be like to be sort of a young person 
being socialized in a family that was espousing these sorts of um, you know views about other people and about Australia and identity and whiteness and so that's sort of the where the idea for the book came from um, and as I wrote the book uh, Michael's family were a lot more sort of what you would call far-right extreme um, but then once we started editing we my editor um, and I we quickly realized that it would be a lot more unsettling for readers to actually encounter a family who weren't so easy to dismiss as just those crazy racists on the far right extreme but who were actually very um you know decent law-abiding nice people for all intents and purposes but held these really you know awful views and that way it would be a lot more easy for them to to see sort of racism among kind of left liberal um you know, sort of views and and how it's harder to confront that. And that was what I wanted to do. So not necessarily very clearly black and white, but to actually show um, that sometimes racism is hardest to confront when it comes across as noble and benevolent um, and with good intentions. And, and that's really what I wanted to tease out. Yeah, that's yeah, so interesting. That's I so mean, true. Bringing in, I guess, you know, we've been saying like, oh, the black and white opinions, like bringing in the grey because, you know, you meet so many nice and wonderful people and then they say something and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, And that was explored really, really well in When Michael Met Me. And I was like, well done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's I'm fascinated though, and I, this is kind of weaving into all of our questions, but... Yeah. I'd love to, because I didn't realise when Michael met me and I came directly out of your academic research, but yeah. I've been to one of those, oh, my God, what's what's that one? Sorry, Reddit. You have to refresh my memory about what that, um, Was what's that far-right group called? Reclaim the, Australia? Pardon? Reclaim Australia? Or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. So I had to go cover one of them for work and it was so uncomfortable yeah. because, clearly it's funny because I don't I don't feel um worried about alienating any listeners because I'm pretty sure that anyone who listens to us and our feminist views is probably on the same page as us yeah. but it felt so it, it I just kind of was like you can't I can't talk any sense to these people because yeah. what they're talking about is not even they haven't even got all the facts they're just yeah yeah oh, some of what they were saying was just so it's amazing, how, it's amazing how different, um, like, you know, in that sort of situation, like you can feel like you're such a different person and you don't even understand what they're saying. Yeah, I, I was like, understand. I don't understand your viewpoint like, you here. I'm trying it. to. I'm trying to be a good journalist and, like, understand and ask kind of half-decent questions and be like, okay, why are you here today and stuff like that. But the, the organiser just got really defensive and started just getting on the attack of, you know, like, oh, well, do you want your head cut off? And I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is not, yeah. you know, it, it, it's just it's yeah. it was very difficult for me yeah. to to go to that. And so I can't even imagine how for you to beco become involved in a, a very deep research project and then to write a novel as well. Did that take any, like, personal toll on you? Yeah, well, because I was interviewing these people face-to-face -face and um, when I was conducting my fieldwork, so the interviews, it was actually right before Reclaim Australia, the Freedom Party, had taken off, um, before Trump 
it, so most of the field work was conducted in 2014 and um, I was meeting people who were pretty much nobodies at that point, um, having coffee with them, listening to them talk to me about wanting to set up, you know, abortion clinics in Lakemba and wanting to, you know, abolish Islam and Muslims from Australia. And then within about a year, when once I started actually writing up the PhD as like the thesis, I started to see this mobilization of these voices um, and see them on television, um, you know, quite prominent voices. And, and what, I, what I quickly saw was it was sort of like a transnational mobilization. I was seeing them mimic a lot of the rhetoric that was coming out of Europe because I followed that closely as well and out of America. Um, so it was almost like this globalization of these voices, voices. But what was more disturbing was how normalized. So things that sounded so extreme, things that people would have been embarrassed or scared to say, not scared, but embarrassed to say before, or would have at least been challenged on, had now become part of normal sort of discussion, you know, to the extent that you could have a Sonia Kruger on, you know, morning television say that she wants to ban Muslim immigration, um, you know, and and, and have these sorts of really um, extreme views uh, expressed without any sort of consequences um, and, you know, the, the more the more they are expressed, the more um, everyday and more sort of vernacular they become. Um, so that for me, and another point that you made is, you know, which I really identify with is how do you even, um, you know, debate somebody who has these sorts of views? And, and what I quickly realised, um, and it was backed up by a lot of the, the researchers I was reading in the area of race, you know, critical race scholarship, was they have a completely different version of reality. So it's not as though we are debating a different angle on a topic the the facts that they have the 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 way that they approach um you know uh, knowledge history it is so completely different um it's as if you are discussing something on another planet so how do you even talk about race with somebody who denies that australia is a settler colonial society you know how do you even talk about whiteness to somebody who doesn't who still believes in the white australia policy and that it was good for australia so it's a completely different reality um and that's why i i wasn't there to debate them i wasn't there to to convert them to to my sort of views i was there to try and understand what what is the logic behind this and what i found very very quickly what united a lot of the viewpoints that I was hearing was this idea that they really do yearn for a white Australia. Um, and even people who I spoke to who, who were ambivalent about multiculturalism, it was always structured around a central white identity. And it was as long as minorities and multicultural others kept in line um, knew their place, then we would be a richer place for it. But as soon as they expressed any sort of agency or, you know, stepped over the line, then quickly that was considered a threat. Um, and that pretty much united almost everybody I spoke to who had these Islamic phobic views. And I think, you know, if we understand that when you want to tackle Islamophobia or racism, when you start from the, the original violence against Indigenous people, and when you understand what race is in Australia, then you build solidarity movements that actually tackle it from a much more holistic way um, and it's a lot harder for people to to defend themselves against that when you're united you're posing a united front across across racialized minorities. Wow <laughs> <laughs> I barely oh. even know what to say. I was just like listening so oh, you're so right you're so right yeah. you're so right. Oh my gosh, so I'm just I am 
absolutely loving hearing hearing like just from, hearing you speak about not this. but not even just someone's opinion like this is researched and like you have so real authority on this and I'm fascinated. so I feel like we're kind of going to go oh, off topic from like the book now because I'm just fascinated I want to know like in your research is, is yeah. there a way to kind of not yet yeah, solve the problem I guess is what I'm looking for but is yeah. there a way to make a difference because if we are both looking at things from two opposite if we're looking through two different lenses how can we kind of change people's views or become to some sort of yeah come to some sort of common consensus well I think um one of the one of the problems that we have in a lot of western multicultural societies is we tend to address racism as though it's something that exists on the fringes so we think it's just the things that happen on public transport or at Reclaim Australia rallies. And, um, you know, tackling that is actually not going to address the sort of structural racism that impacts on people's everyday life opportunities. So to be spat at on the street and to, to feel unsafe on public transport is, of course, horrible and needs to be addressed. But, you know, if you were to ask somebody who's racialized what affects you on a daily basis more, it would be things like discrimination in employment. It would be things like um, lack of representation in the media, um, the structural bars in, um, you know, the arts, uh, you know, having to constantly um, go through white systems and white structures in order to have your voice heard in the media, um, you know, to... to you know, housing, all, all these sorts of things. And all the evidence is there, for, you know, that's been conducted about how, you know, racism impacts on people's life opportunities um, in material ways. And and that's the kind of racism that comes through the state, through policies and laws that is so much um, harder to for people to wrap their head around because it actually means that you address what is the foundations of our society. And it's easier for people to say, oh, racism is just something that happens, you know, when some drunk yells out, go back home, you walk. But, you know, it's a lot It's a lot more difficult to accept or to confront the fact that you have a parliament, you know, not, you know, Australian parliament that rep- that is not representative of the multicultural fabric of our society, um, to actually realise that we have people who are making laws who do not represent Australian society. Um, you know, and I, the way I see it is if people understand it from gender, it's, it's easier them, for them to see how it impacts um, in a, in a racialized way. So if, you know, if you wanted to tackle racism, um, sexism, you know, what is going to actually impact on women more? Tackling catcalls from a construction site to be really, you know, um, uh, you know uh, like try or is it, do you want to actually dismantle patriarchy? What's actually going, what would women want more, um, you know, better paid maternity leave and, you know, conditions at work or, you know, not being harassed um, when they walk down the street, you know, and both need to be addressed. But when you address only the things that are really marginal, then you don't actually impact on on lives in a real way. And that's the conversation that's missing in our society because it actually means you have to confront, well, who are we as a nation? And it's still, the the language is still, oh, we are a multicultural society, but in terms of the actual structures, no, we're not. We're still a society centred around whiteness. And 
another point is, you know, when I was writing the PhD and the thesis and the book with Michael McMena, um, I, I remember Tony Abbott saying, to, you know, that whole rhetoric about Team Australia, you have to get on board Team Australia and, and other sort of rhetoric that's used that, to police to police minorities. And in, in that particular instance, it was very clearly dog whistling to Muslims. But, you know, what I noticed very quickly was how that language was embraced by the people I was um, interviewing. And so it was the, the state does give permission to hate. It, it enables those voices. And so rather than, uh, rather than simply addressing people who are parroting those voices, go to the source. And that's when you start looking at, you know, politics and, and the language we use and the laws. And, and, and that's what we don't do enough of in this country. We leave that work to the victims, the minorities. And the best example of that is Indigenous Australians who are constantly having to fight for basic rights um, while people who actually have the privilege to make a difference to their lives, uh, you know, are not doing that, um, are not actually do- doing it in the corridors of power. So that, that for me is the most important thing that I've learned from, from my research. And what I really wanted to do with when Michael met Mina was to, to show how, how racism impacts on people's everyday lives. It's not just something that, you know, people just get over um it has a flow-on effect on people's you know psychological you know health their mental health their their physical their physical safety um and that's you know what I was trying to to show that lived experience of racism yeah Mm. I think that's such a good point because people focus on I guess the bigger picture, the big things, um, when really if you change a bunch of the little things, the big things will follow and it's all about the little things that do affect everyone every single day. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, like with, with particularly the rhetoric around asylum seekers and refugees, um, you know, we, you know, all the sort of activism that, that, that is poured into that, um, and ultimately what we have to confront is the fact that a political party is not going to have any kind of policy that's not going to get them votes. And the fact of the matter is that in Australia, um, the way we treat refugees um, and locking them up gets votes. So we need to actually confront that, 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 out, that the majority of Australians support this. Um, and so, you know, what, what I try to do is mainly try to to use my my writing as a way of of getting people to to have some more empathy um, and to understand the impact of of their racism and the impact of their prejudice um, and, and I think art is a very powerful way to do that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a, a question about um, when Michael met Mina um, in relation to you know we've talked a bit about. Um, what you've learnt and how it worked before and while you were writing the book. Um, since its release, have you had any um, contact from people who have read it um, about, you know, whether maybe they have feel like they've had their views altered or that you've taught them anything about this kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's been really beautiful, the response um, in, in Australia and also the book is out in the US. It's been out in the US for over a year now. And I get a lot of responses in the US um, because we got, you know, it's very similar sort of experiences in terms of particularly after Trump um, and sort of the mobilisation of those far-right voices um, and state policies against 
them in the so-called other. Um, and, you know, yeah, I do. I get wonderful responses about from people who either feel that it's validated their experiences, so people who understand what it feels like to be the victim of racism, or those who really appreciate having their views opened about um, about asylum seekers and refugees um, and about the sort of hate speech and its, and its impact. So that's been so heartening. That's great. I mean, you know, I guess with every person who reads this book, hopefully they either, you know, identify or, you know, learn a bit more or think a bit more about um, these kinds of issues in our society, which is really, I think, can only lead to good things, I hope. (laughs) I couldn't couldn't honestly ask for more as a writer. I mean, if that happens, then, you know, that for me is just the best thing. Um, so do you think you'll be doing more academic research like you did um, with the Islamophobia project? Yeah, so I've just started a, um, a big project now for the next three years um, and I'm, I, I, love, I love working with young people. I love, I love exploring sort of the, the, the highs and lows of adolescence. It, it's just for me and a time of life that I still have this sort of very visceral memory of it um, and I and I am always thinking about what would it be like to grow up in this kind of an environment. So I've, I'm doing a research project that looks at the 9-11 generations, so people who were born between 98 and 2003. So they've only ever known a world at war on terror. They don't have a pre-9-11 memory. <laughs> um, so, so what does it mean to come of age in that kind of a political context? How has it um formed and shaped their identity or maybe it hasn't I mean and for me the the point as I started developing this idea was to actually um, compare the generational impact on Muslim and non-Muslim youth um, so look at you know what what are the experiences of of young um, Australians from a Muslim background and from a non-Muslim background um, coming of age in this sort of war on terror you know hysteria around radicalization um, and how has it formed their identities, how how has it affected relationships at school? Um, and, you know, we hear so often uh, about young people but we never really hear from them. Um, we, we tend to make a lot of assumptions about how they're feeling and, I, and I'm very conscious of that, particularly as I have a daughter who's you know, about to become a teenager and I can project a lot of my own experiences onto her but that would be very unfair um, and I can, and I'm sure, as a as somebody like me who's been so intimately connected with anti-racism work since I was in high school, I'm sure that 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 colours my own um, assumptions about what it must be like to be a young person because I'm so in the thick of it. I'm I'm maybe wrongfully assuming that other people are, are, are experiencing the same things and thinking about the world in the same way. And I just want to give them an opportunity to talk from their point of view. Yeah, I find great. I mean, no longer a teenager, but I find the same thing with um, working in the media and just being so connected and aware of what everyone's doing. And Caitlin, you're like, so even though you're in, um, like, not working in news, you're still really on top of what's happening. And then sometimes I'll have lunch with like other friends, and they just, they just don't. They just live in a bubble, and I just. I'm like, oh, it's so it's so different because, like, I just assume everyone knows about Harvey Weinstein and Me Too because 
you know, it's all over my newsfeed and yeah. everyone I follow is talking about it because they follow a bunch of feminists. Like, I, it's, I, even it's remember, I even remember my favourite example of the bubble that I live in and I assume everyone knows everything is um, having to explain to my parents who Lin-Manuel Miranda was and what <laughs> Hamilton is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and even year. just like... And I was like, how have you not heard of this? It's <laughs> our bookish bubble. And Randy, yeah. you might be a, a little bit the same, like this bubble that you have when you're in the bookish community and you're like how has everyone not heard of for example like how's everyone not heard of when Michael met Mina because I've seen it all over bookstagram but then you're like yeah. oh wait not everybody follows yeah. people Michael who follows. exclusively post about books yeah. and publishers and it's it's really like oh you've got you've kind of got to have like you you're like this is the book that for example like it was funny seeing Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine because that seemed to be the book that everyone like normal for lack of a better word was talking about plus everyone in the bookish community was yeah. talking about and I was like oh this is one that transcends like Gone Girl or The Girl yeah. on the Train and you're like yeah this is one that everyone knows about <laughs> yeah it's kind of um, and especially when when you are politically sort of conscious and expressive as we all are um you know you tend you, the way that you navigate social media is so different so I'm on Twitter a lot and you know that that's a world of it in and of itself. It really is another planet. And you know, there are, then I have friends who are completely, you know, have that don't have Twitter accounts. They don't tweet. They don't follow that. Um, so they're not connected in the same way. And so the conversations exactly that I would have with them, they wouldn't be on top of the latest sort of Twitter sphere storm and Twitter, you know, on and the latest controversy. Um, and that that's exactly right. So you know, I'm making assumptions about how politically engaged I am um, but assuming that you know I interviewed somebody yesterday for example for my research so I'm interviewing young people and she's 20 years old at university and I and I asked her um, how she felt about the the um, the link cafe siege um, and also the shooting of um, uh, you know the police officer in Parramatta by a young person you know and and she said she hadn't really thought about it because it wasn't really mentioned at her school. It was just, um, you know, she didn't she didn't know much about it, and I was just dumbstruck because I felt like my life was on hold when all of that happened because I was so engaged in what was happening and you know, yeah. doing interviews and writing and uh, you know, but and that's that's the thing about being a writer. It's about always seeing the world from other points of view and not assuming that you're gaze is the same gaze as everybody else um that you navigate the world in a different way and, and that's one of the problems with racism is that people are incapable of understanding that there are many ways of living um and that you shouldn't ex- see that as a threat you know that that you should understand that we can navigate the world in different ways um and that that that's okay but you have to build the ability to have empathy first for you to even be able to see those possibilities I think that's probably like my favorite thing that anyone has ever said on this podcast. <laughs> like, honestly, that is so, so true. And I guess that's for us, like, why we like to talk to writers as well. And mm. um, because we want to hear everybody else's voices. And I guess we also recognize our privilege and we would like to amplify the voices of other writers. And, you know, I guess I just want to always learn how I can be a better human. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, I um, always want to be better. But just on what you were saying too about, 
like I guess connecting with young people and, and realizing too that they see the world differently and, and you know what's big in their world and oh, I have what a moment like think. that with my brother almost once a week. <laughs> like more than once. How old is he? He's fifteen. He's actually turned sixteen at the end of the month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, I'm like even I'm just, just even I'm only just, twenty-one, but it's like a, a whole different world. Even now. just in terms of like the social media that you use and like what's yeah. big with one person and what's big with another. Um, but I think that's real. Like that obviously can only serve to make you a better writer for a young adult audience as well, because you'll be more in touch with what teens are actually talking about and you're not just thinking, well, this must be big for them. Like, so I think that that's, it's obviously like personally going to be such great development for you as well as contributing some much needed academic research on this topic. Well, I hope so. And I mean, you know, like not to dwell on it, but it it can be, you know, like for example, the Me Too movement. So I remember like just voraciously reading as, as much as I could about, um, you know, when, when people started to say, oh, but there's a spectrum and, um, you know, not everything needs to be treated the same way. And then when Matt Damon made his comments and just reading so much around that um, and then, uh, you know, Aziz Ansari and, and, and really sort of trying to understand all these different contributions and angles and then having a conversation with, with friends who are not connected with that at all and, you know, you feel like you're, you're starting at a complete, you're, you're not starting at the same, you know, point. Um, you know, you've got all these sorts of um all these other viewpoints about it and and they don't you know they've only got the, the one viewpoint that they that they've you know come to without the benefit of having read so much other stuff and it's not I'm not trying to make sort of an argument that that we're you know more intellectual or we're more knowledgeable or it, it's not about that it's it's about you know making an effort to be well read and to have to 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 challenge your your viewpoint um, to to see does it weigh up against what the what other people are thinking, um, and not not to be afraid to to ch- you know to challenge yourself um, on on your views, and I think that's what is we need to to really um, be teaching young people because, and, and I mean I think young people do it a, a lot better than older people. Yeah, so much more open. Like I go to schools and I am all you know really ref- refreshed and reinvigorated by how willing um people can be like teenagers can be to try and understand and, and I think that comes from a sense that when you're a teenager I mean I hate making generalizations but you know there, there are different it's such there are moments of vulnerability that you just don't you know I feel like when I was a teenager I never felt as passionately and I never felt like I never loved or hated as much as I did as a teenager it just felt like the world was going to implode with my emotions Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That makes you a more empathetic person because you're so in tune with how you feel and, and the impact of people's words and opinions, and, uh, and you know that's why you know adults piss me off <laughs> much. More. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I it's, that. it is so true that you can change and evolve as a person, and that isn't a bad thing. If you, and I'm gonna like, I mean completely honest and I was honest in my review of when Michael met Mina too when I said that like five years before I read that book yeah. my opinions would have aligned more with Michael's than Mina's and that's because I grew up in a household where that was the view of my parents yeah. and I haven't looked beyond that but I think it makes like you need to realize that sometimes the views that you're brought up with 
are wrong. Oh, that is my favorite thing at the moment. I feel like I've read a few books this year and seeing it where like that's the theme is like yeah. deciding that what your parents taught you doesn't mean like that's what you have to believe and that you can form your own views. I am so I think, obsessed with that. I think that's that what I love so much about stuff right now. When Michael met Mina too, because it kind of reflected this change that I'd gone through. I mean, I went through it kind of at university and yeah, um, learning more. Learning, and, yeah, yeah, and obviously being involved in the media, you just yeah. are so more aware of like what we've just been talking about. Like you're so more aware of everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it mirrored that change where you're like, oh, gosh, these people who I've, I've believed in my whole life because they're your parents mm-hmm. Uh, are not you know they don't know everything um they're and then as you reach adulthood as well you're like oh my god everyone who's an adult is really just trying to just trying to muddle along aren't they like they're not I like, seem oh so my gosh smart when you're a teenager yeah or a child it's and then you so you much know. to think that there are people my age having babies because I'm like what like I am a child like I am still a child how can how can you care for another human life like good on you if that's what you're doing but oh my I am not going to have babies for so long because I just I'm still a child so it it seems it's so funny to come to that realization as you grow up and be like oh you know there's not a moment where you grow up (laughs) and it's I mean like with when Michael met me it's about these sort of little moral dilemmas that we all encounter with family because, you know, I, you know, I challenge anyone to tell me a family who are all completely politically aligned. Um, you know, most people do confront probably the worst racism and sexism within among the people they love and confronting that sometimes, well, actually I, I would, you know, I would say that confronting a stranger is so much easier. There's less at stake, you know, but to actually risk a relationship we care about them really yeah, yeah, exactly and so um sometimes like with in the case of michael you're not going to convert your parents you're not going to change their point of view it's about how do you um salvage something out of that relationship that still manages to uh, keep something there but but still have the right to evolve as an individual that's not hostage to your parents views um and i think that a lot of people um, will confront that at, at some point in their life when they realise that people closest to them, you know, have views that, that they find abhorrent. Um, and sometimes you can walk away from family, but sometimes you can't and you don't want to because there's there's something else there. You know, for me, the, the, those little intimate spaces of how you repair and, and relationships, you know, in that context are really important um, because it's you know, you want to build people's sort of resilience and and convictions and they need to to know that they have permission to have their own points of view and to be critical. And, you know, being critical as a young person sets you up to be critical as an adult. There's a lot of of adults you meet just have missed that, (laughs) you know, just completely missed that. And, if you know, if you can do that as a young person, um, then you're giving yourself an advantage in the way you navigate the world. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, sort of on the topic of, I guess, growing as a person and times changing and things like that, I'm curious, with the um, film adaptation of Does My Head Look Big in This, was um, has there been any updating, I guess, because the novel was published just over 10 years ago? Yeah, that's a like really great question. Definitely, um, you know, that book 
you know, I, I wrote that the first draft of the book when I was in year nine. So it was the first draft was written in the 90s, so even a, a completely different context, um, and then updated again and rewritten when I, um, you know, started rewrote it in the early 2000s. And then in, you know, now that we've come to to um, adapt it, you know, it's it's been updated again. To and what the sort of the bittersweet reality is that I've actually had to escalate and amplify the racism and Islamophobia because it has actually worsened. Um, and so, what I put Amal through now is a lot a lot more because that's the reality of how things have um, developed and escalated. Um, and you know, I've so yeah, so it has. There are significant changes to it, but the, the central premise is there and the central story. But um, as with all adaptations, you have to lose a lot and um, and change a lot. Yeah, so, so they've been I was, changed anyway. I guess. I'm interested though. Like, was there ever um, any? Sorry, um, any option to maybe keep it back in? that time because obviously it's set in Sydney and there's a lot of like obviously the Cronulla riots and stuff um, all around that time or was it always to be updated for a contemporary situation? Yeah, um, so when it was published, it was published before the, the Cronulla riots um, mm. and it so it was set actually in Melbourne at the time of the Bali bombings. So in the book the Bali bombings happen. Um, so yeah, you you can definitely adapt and maintain the, the setting and the time, um, but because there are so f- well, there's practically no <laughs> films about Muslims um, in contemporary Australia that are very, well. There's there's actually really been nothing from the point of view of a Muslim female. There's been several films which centre male stories, and Muslim women are peripheral to that, and that tells you something about. The, the not only the way that race operates in our film industry, but the way gender does as well. Um, mm-hmm. the, and I acknowledge both <laughs> um, to center, you know, a woman, a female voice um, and, and experience. Um, and so I thought this is an opportunity, given that there's so few opportunities to do this, to actually mm-hmm. make a statement that reflects, you know, what's happening in you know now. Um, so yeah, that's that's the decision that we that we took. Um, and what's the progress like on that? When can we go see it in the cinema? Like, these things, I I am sort of completely horrified by how slow the film industry is. It's actually we are actually moving at a quicker pace than most projects. I think most projects are around ten years, for goodness sakes, from the moment you know you start writing. It could be you know like dozens of scripts, versions of the script. Um, but we're at a stage now where we're, we're hoping, fingers crossed, to be on our final script, um, final draft of the script. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're, we're really praying that we can start filming at the end of next year, which would be a miracle if that happens, but we're pushing for it. It's the only time I've ever said, you know, that there is an advantage to Islamophobia because it makes this story topical. <laughs> so I'm like, just can you just exploit the the, the, rea- the Let's just get it made. <laughs> that's, that's, like we we see things like you know love Simon, yeah, and we're like, wow, that happened so quickly. Like it's just yeah. so topical, and it's you've oh, got yeah. to remember that it moves. So it's it is it has been years in the making because that book came out a few years ago. But even yeah. even so, like yeah. it, it 
thing happened relatively quickly considering when the book came out. Yes, yeah. I mean, and that it, it really, that's a, another conversation altogether about the way um, if we have societies that truly invest in the arts, that they actually realise that the, how powerful film and, and you know, um, popular culture can be in challenging a political space. Um, but you, to do that, you need money and people to invest in it. And, um, you know, we just seem to always be cutting back, back, back. Yeah. yeah. I'm so excited for this to become reality. I yeah. think it's going to be, it's going to be such an important um, story, I guess, in Australian culture as well. Um, so I really, I really love the book too. And I love the Aussiness. Yeah. Of um, and I, I just, I think it, like you said, it's so great to have that story focused on a woman yeah. as well. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, and not just, um, you know, Cent- not just having a central character as a woman, but actually having it written by a woman as well, and 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 a Muslim, you know, Arab woman. Again, you know, we we have those characters, but they're very often not written in an authentic way because they're not written by people who come from that background. Um, and you know, that representation in the arts is so important. Um, just in terms of not, you know, at the minimal of getting things, you know, authentic and right, let alone sort of the moral, you know, um, you know justification. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, I hope, like, we wish you all the best of luck with the rest of the scripting process. Um, how does that process change from, you know, writing a novel? Yeah, how have you found screenwriting? I'm loving it. It's a very different way of writing. It's a visual way. So you constantly have to think, um, you know, uh, you know, I have, I'm writing it with somebody, and you know, we're all we're constantly. He'll constantly say to me, "Okay, how can we um, dramatize this?" So there's no sort of in in a monologue. There's no introspection. There's no moments where the character can just, um, you know, tell the audience what they're thinking or feeling. Yeah. Guys, you know, so it's a very different way of using your brain. Um, but I love it. I find that really challenging and exciting. Um, you know, I still love the actual process of writing prose and a book. Um, but the screenwriting process, it's fun and it's a different way of using my brain. That's great. Excellent. Are there any other writing projects in the works? Um, no, that's that's enough at the moment. I'm already busy Fair with, you know, academic research. And yeah, there's a few things on the plate. You're fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent. If people want to follow your progress and just follow your writing and stuff on social media, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter, so at Runda, capital A, FATA, F-A-T-T-A-H. Um, and then I've got my, you know, normal website, which is Um But, yeah, Twitter is probably the best, like the quickest way to access me. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Caitlin, where can people find us? At Better Words Pod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Um, and our website is betterwordspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thank you, Randa, for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you so for much such for joining us. Interesting <laughs> conversation. You've given us lots of food for thought. Wonderful. Thank you. It was really, really enjoyable for my end as well. Oh, good. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.